I'm going to ask uh, some helpers in the back to hand you a sheet that um, our pastor of handouts forgot to tell them to hand out. That's me, by the way. Um, so they're handing out a little sheet for you now. You'll need that at the end of the service. Okay, not the end of the service, end of the sermon. All right. So make sure that every adult gets one, and if a, if a child asks, I'm pretty sure we have enough. Um, make sure that you get that. If, if I missed you last week, Happy New Year. It's good to see you this, this day, this year, this month. It's uh, hard to believe it's the second Sunday of 2022. I want to talk to you about the next two Sundays. Two Sundays, we're going to ask two questions in the sermons. The first today, who is my neighbor? Next week, who is, or who are our neighbors? You see the difference. Who is my neighbor? So that's about me and you, and I'm going to make the case for that this morning from that account that we started to read that we all know as the Good Samaritan Passage. Next week, who are our neighbors? We actually have some insight onto that. It's not just random. Um, about a year ago, I gave the elders a demographic study of the neighbors and a little bit of the faith makeup of the neighbors surrounding Grace Covenant Church. You're like, wow, well, who is that? Well, it was everybody within a two to three minute drive or walking distance to the church. I mean, really, I know some of you would dream and love to only drive two to three minutes to get here, but I don't think that's any of us. Maybe the Isaacs, I'm thinking. By the way, it's not a gospel group. That's, we have two Isaacs here that both live uh, not too far away. So they drive closely. Um, I think they are a gospel force to be reckoned with, though. Let the record show. But uh, we're going to talk about who our neighbors are. But, but, you know, before we shine the light in South End, it's good for us to shine the light at home. We come to church week after week, and, and if you're like me, when I was attending church and not up here, uh, in my previous Christian experience, you, you hear a lot of grandiose assertions and even great commissions and great commandments. We, we come to church week after week, and we're engaged in Bible study groups, Sunday school hour. Well, almost every week, didn't meet this morning, but by the end of this summer, over the course of the last three years, we will have journeyed through the whole Bible. Uh, a survey, of course, not deep dive in all the texts, but a journey through the whole Bible survey, seeing the gospel thread woven throughout. We sing songs that lift our hearts and minds to the high things of God. We, we have prayer together. We, we worship together. We fellowship together. And all of these elements are designed to help us set our minds on things that are above and not on things of this earth. Why? Because for those of us who are in Christ have died and our life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is our life appears, then we'll appear with him in glory. We actually believe this Bible. We believe it matters. It's important. It doesn't just inform our life decisions. It's the foundation for our very lives. But if we're not careful, we can allow church to become, well, just theoretical, just sanctified idealism, and really not do much with it Sunday afternoon through Saturday night. We're tempted to make church simply content to consume instead of community to engage with. And I want to challenge you 
Church is more than just content to consume. And the last two years have not really helped us in that regard, has it? It's become so much more convenient to just consume instead of engage. And for those of you watching that tune in with us every single week, God bless you. We have church family. I'm thinking of families that were here pre-COVID that are still needing to engage online. I'm, I'm grateful for that, and you do engage. And for those of you who are tempted just to have this on as background noise so you can check a box while you're doing other things, can I just caution you? This is worth more than that, not because I'm preaching or because it's grace covenant, but because this is God's church. And it matters. It matters. We know there's absolutely no way for a believer to have a strong relationship with God if they don't live in the Word of God. And yet you go home and 66 books, and I don't know how big your print is or what kind of Bible you've got, but you're like, there's a thousand. Where do I start? Ah, but then we set the table with our Bible study groups at 9 a.m., there's help for you. Then the pastor has this wonky idea of having us all read scripture together for a whole year working through foundational passages of scripture. You're not in this alone. There are tools to help you, but we can't make you use them. But this is not the year to continue on a path of disengagement. We hear, let's serve our community and then I'm looking around at the congregation. I'm thinking, do we ask the question, which one? <laughs> Where do we do that? Concord? North Charlotte? South End? South Park? Deal work? Myers Park? South Charlotte? Lake Wiley? Denver? Uptown? Near Carowinds? Fort Mill? Rock Hill? Where have I missed? Indian Trail? Indian Land? Where? Harrisburg? Yeah? Kannapolis? Where do we, Pastor, what are we going to do? Well, we're not doing a block party at all those places, I'm telling you. We can't make fall fest. We can't throw it on a trailer either and, and, and take it everywhere. So this lawyer walks up to Jesus. Sounds like a bad joke, doesn't it? <laughs> but this lawyer walks up to Jesus with the very same question. What do I do with this? Now, he had a sinister motive that we'll uncover shortly. But he walks up to Jesus and he says, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus doesn't just answer him, he points him back to the word of God. What does the Bible say? What's written in the word? What's the Shema, right? What's that thing that you know? The listen, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And in Luke 10, 27, the lawyer answers and says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Praise God, he quoted scripture, like our four young men did this morning. Like others are ready to do after the service. They just didn't know they were going to have to do it in front of people. So that's why we made both. Excellent call, Julia. So we made a space for you after service. He quotes scripture to Jesus, and Jesus says, hey, that's right. Trust the word. You've quoted that correctly. This is the way of life. And then let's look again at verse 29 before we get into the parable that Jesus gives as an answer. But he, there it is, desiring to justify himself. That'd be a good little thing to underline, however it's rendered in whatever translation you have in your Bible. Desiring to justify himself said, 
boy, I'd love to just pick this verse apart. I won't have time this morning, but can I just give you an aside real quick? We live in a world and a culture that constantly seeks to justify themselves. You and I seek to justify ourselves. I judge others by their actions. I judge myself by my intentions. I've got to be the only one too, by the way, y'all are looking at me, right? Because I let myself off the hook all the time by this little phrase. I uttered myself, well, I didn't mean to do that. What I meant to say was, you know, if they, I, I meant to, I, I meant to, I meant to, I meant to, I meant to. If I could like trademark that phrase, man, I meant to, I meant to. But I hold my kids to the standard of actions. I'm looking at their behavior. Well, they're looking at mine, but I'm saying, oh, you can't judge me by that because you don't know my heart. <laughs> We, we, we all want to justify ourselves. And this guy's saying, how do I inherit eternal life? He wants to justify himself. And he's like, you, who's my neighbor? There's a reason. I'll get to what the rabbis were teaching in that day just, uh, in just a moment. Can I remind you there's no justification outside of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ? Though the Bible says that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3 also teaches us that it's written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. I doubt you've seen that verse on a t-shirt recently. But it's the truth. I want to finish out the passage this morning and look at what our Lord says as he responds. Luke 10, pick up with me please in verse 30. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out, he took out two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. And Jesus looks back at the lawyer and says, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Verse 37, he said, The one who showed him mercy, and Jesus said to him, Go, you go, and do likewise. Most of us in the room are familiar with this story, but I do want us to take a look at the parable. There are a few lessons to learn from the parable. Let's look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. Think about the players involved. So if we were casting for the Good Samaritan, who would we cast? We would start with the robbers. So who would sign up to be the thugs, right? Or the King James says thieves. I like that, right? Some of you think that's an essential oil, but it's actually robbers. <laughs> Right? So Jesus, Jesus is giving this account. We've got the robbers. We'd get you know, our guys to sign up to, to, to be the robbers. And then we'd have this unsuspecting man going from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Right? He's, he's heading down the path. And he's going to be, we'd probably edit this if we were doing it church. They're not going to actually strip him bare in the church service. But they're going to take everything from him and get him uh, just 
totally beat up and, and take all of his things and leave him by the wayside. And then we would have, give me some of the other characters, talk to me, please. Who else? A priest. Well, he would look, I mean, because it says priest, he would look priestly, right? In his priestly garments with his priestly duties. Coming down from Jerusalem, by the way, he would have just left some priestly duties. And ceremonially, it would have cost him to touch something unclean. Keep that in mind. Not that he gets a pass, but I mean, keep that in mind. He had his reputation to think of. The priest would come looking all religified, right? That's not a word. And then we have the the Levite. Now, a lot of people give different representations for that. For this morning, let's say the priest represents religion, right? Institutionalized religion. The Levite represents the law. That's really their area of expertise. And we can nuance that a little bit, but hang with me for this morning. So the law comes down. We could put him dressed, you know, like a police officer if you wanted to. Not quite the same law, I know, but it's a kid's play. Give me a pass. So we have the law, the priest, we've got uh, the, the robber, and then we have the, the good Samaritan that would come by, okay? The good Samaritan that would come by as well. All of these people had different responses, different reactions, different thoughtful reactions. Each one of them thought about the way they were going to respond to the need that they saw. Now, one preacher, I wish I could take credit for this, but I was looking for a way to help drive this home for the young people, and I'm going to be honest, it drove it home for me too. You've got three groups of people here. You've got the beater-uppers. That's the robbers. By the way, have you met some beater-uppers in life? I mean, it seems to be their spiritual gift is to always put you down and to always find fault in everything. They're constantly assaulting others, if not physically, verbally. The beater-uppers, don't be in that class. Life's full of them. We've got the (laughs) passer-uppers. That's the Levite, the priest. And then, praise God, we've got the (laughs) picker-uppers. Just a a wonderful illustration from the Good Samaritan this morning. Where do you want your friends to come from in those three categories? Be that kind of friend. Be that kind of friend. The passer-uppers, though, are the group that probably broke the heart of Jesus the most. Sinners sin. It's what sinners do. But, but here we have two representatives of religion and the law. Religion can be a part of a group that would pass by those in need. Why? Because religion without Christ, listen to me, is mean-spirited and deceptive. Religion without Jesus is mean-spirited and deceptive. It's designed to separate you from Christ if Christ is not the anchor of the religious experience and identity. What about the law? The law, the Levite represents the law. The law can make observation and offer consequences, but it cannot function with compassion and love. And then we come to the Good Samaritan. The Samaritan, this group of people that were largely hated by the Jews. I don't want to nuance all that for you this morning, but just to say they were a marginalized part of society. And Jesus was so clever and intentional when he made the good guy the one that everybody in the room hated. He was very intentional about that. Marginalized by the Jewish people, he surgically uses them as an example of one who did the right thing. He rendered immediate aid, the Samaritan did, He gave up what he had, 
for the one in need. He put him on his donkey, right? Gave up his comfort, his convenience, put him on his donkey. He brought him and stayed with him to a place where he could be cared for. This wasn't a one and done. He said, you know what you need in your life? Here's another thing. No, he said, you know what you need in your life is somebody, and I'll be that somebody in this moment of need. He gave himself for that. He cared for him at his own expense and then entrusted him to another to provide for his continuing care. You know the story. You've heard the story. Jesus tells the story beautiful. And then he asked the question in verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? And the Samaritan, or or rather the the lawyer responds, um, the one who showed mercy. Notice the disdain in the lawyer's response. He won't even say the name Samaritan. Like Jesus didn't say, and then there was a one who showed mercy. He said there was a Samaritan. The lawyer won't say the name. Can I just tell you something? If you can't even say something kind about someone, you're not in the picker-upper group. If you're struggling to be friendly when you just talk about somebody or say their name, it's time to change group identities. No ethnicity has a moral high ground. No ethnicity has a moral high ground before the cross. It's our response to our creator. It's our actions. It's whether we choose to obey God or disobey God that establishes virtue in our lives. That's it. Nothing to do with our ethnicity. Well, there's a look at the parable. I hope that you see the gospel in this parable. I'm going to come back to that lawyer's question in just a moment. We're going to land this plane, but I can't ignore this. Of all of the life lessons, the picker-uppers, the beater-uppers, and the passer-uppers, and all the other great little lessons we can learn from the Good Samaritan, let me certainly expose to you, which I'm sure you're already there, the gospel thread. The poor man that was beaten and robbed in this story is us. Us. Sin ravaged our lives. We, we, we were left, as it were, on the side of life's roads, damaged, almost destroyed completely by sin. Now, here's a twist for you. We're also the robbers, too, because we choose to disobey God and go our own way. The Samaritan is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Religion and the law symbolized by the priest and the Levite are incapable of saving you. What an amazing truth of the gospel of grace here that the Lord Jesus should find his neighbor in a fallen world. Who would have ever dreamt up this story that God himself would have chosen sinful man and woman to be his neighbor? that he should come to where we are on the side of life's road, almost completely destroyed by sin, that he should bend over us with a heart glowing with love and pour into our wounds the sweet healing balm of his presence and breathe into our lifeless lungs the life-giving Holy Spirit. Of all the lessons of the Good Samaritan, none are greater than this, 
For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't happen upon you on the side of the road. He left heaven's throne, robed himself in flesh, was pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was laid upon his back and it pleased the Father to do this so that you and I could have an advocate before the King of glory. Jesus became man so that we could come become royalty, sharing in the glorious inheritance for the people of God. Heaven is ours because he came to earth. He died, was buried in a borrowed tomb, and on the third day rose to life. Don't miss the gospel. Christ loved you when you were the poor man or woman on the side of the road, and you were also the robbers that inflicted the pain. What a glorious, glorious parable. But let's go back to the question, shall we? Can we go back to the beginning where all of this started? Why did we get this illustration? Well, the lawyer says, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, love God, love others. He points him to that, and by the way, in that order, mind you, I preached that message a long time ago, but that great commandment is in a specific order for a specific reason. A lot of people get really good at loving others and they skip loving God. And that doesn't earn your way into heaven. You can be the most benevolent, upstanding citizen of all of the precious United States of America or the global community and get to heaven and Jesus say, depart from me. I never knew. You did some great things, but you didn't do it in and through me. Love God first. Put others above yourself. And the lawyer says, desiring to justify himself, who is my neighbor? Why the pushback? You see, the rabbis taught in this day that the actual law, they, they took the law and then they added something to it. Rabbis were good at that. Hey, preachers today are good at that too. We have to keep a check on ourselves. But the rabbis said, love your neighbor in the law. Those three words they added to that. Love your neighbor in the law. Jesus here pulls the pin on the grenade of truth, drops it, and says, that's not what it says. It says, love your neighbor. Well, who is my neighbor, rabbi? He's saying, I want to see if you say it the way the other ones say it. Of course, Jesus didn't, never a man spake such as this. Jesus taught by this parable that every single person that's in need is our neighbor. It has nothing to do with ethnicity, church, creed, or social status. It's not simply a matter of geography. This parable forbids all limitations to mercy, someone wrote. And yet... It's so broad, it can be overwhelming. Now, what we know as the Shema in the Old Testament, we refer to as the great commandment in the New Testament. But many of us can get numb to that, right? It's like when the pastor says, read your Bible, and you go, uh, careful with that, by the way. You never know where you land. Not a good Bible study method. 
So we give you tools for that. It's like when the pastor says, go be Jesus to the community. You walk out the front door and you're like, uh, okay, what do I do with that? We, we become numb to the great commandment because we see it as loving, helping, serving everybody. I mean, according to Jesus' description, we're, we're to help anyone that's hurting. Can I tell you something this morning? I'm not taking away from the word here, but when you try to love everybody, you can end up loving nobody. <laughs> like it can be so broad and unattainable that you're like, I, I give up, I give up. If we're not intentional, we end up having a metaphorical love for a metaphorical neighbor and it just never pans out. It's like those people that say, well, I don't have to attend the local church. I'm a member of the global church, to which I usually say, well, call your global pastor the next time you're in the global hospital. We know through research and experience that we can only do a few things really well. Grace Covenant Church, friends, guests, family this morning, I suggest to you that the things that we give our attention to ought to probably be the things that Jesus said were important. Now, there's a lot of stuff we can do in, from the Bible and Christian things and good things, but we ought to try to focus on the things he said that were important to him. So I want to call you to your role. When we think about who is our neighbor, I want to call you to your role. Let me give you an illustration on this side of the church. I want to call you to your role as ambassadors. I want you to consider this for me. When we're thinking about who is my neighbor, I want you to be reminded that the Bible says that you and I, we are ambassadors for Christ. The scripture comes from 2 Corinthians chapter number 5. Here it is. Let me give you the context though. Uh, they're writing and, and saying, look, we, we've been saved. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new cre creation. The old's passed away. The new's come. All of this is from God. Christ has reconciled us. We're now ministers of reconciliation. Verse 19, Christ was reconciling the world to himself. And then he says, therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And then a powerful verse after that. For our sake, the Bible says, he made him who to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. But the hinge on that, the hinge on that little door, we are ambassadors for Christ. How does God get the message of the gospel out to the world? I mean, we're on Facebook. We're on uh, you, the YouTubes, right? We're on uh, live control. We're broadcasting online. That, that doesn't get the message out to the, to the world. You do. I do. Not as Pastor Chad, but as member Chad, as brother Chad. We do. If we are ambassadors for Christ, then your home is an embassy of the kingdom. If we are ambassadors, then your homes are embassies of the kingdom. Our sending nation and king has strategically planted and picked the location for you to dwell. The United States picks the locations of embassies very intentionally, in fact, controversially, in Israel for years now. But it's very intentional. There are political reasons, there are geopolitical reasons, there are strategic reasons for commerce. There's all kinds of reasons for representation and to leverage the strength of the sending nation. Can I submit to you this morning 
that from the Bible, Paul is on Mars Hill, and as he's giving that incredible discourse, there's this little truth that pops up in the text that's pretty monumental. In Acts 17, take the note, verse 26, and he, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, watch this, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Do you see it? Look at it on the screen. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Why? Verse 27. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He's actually not far from each one of us. Context is beautiful. Go read the whole passage in Acts 17. But I wanted to bring your attention to that little morsel of truth. Go back one verse for me, Mark. He set the periods and boundaries. We don't live where we live by accident. Our sovereign God, not the floor plan. Our sovereign God, not the school system because you were drawn to it. Our sovereign God, not just because it's what you could afford in that moment. Our sovereign God, if this text is true, has divinely ordained the location of your embassy for the kingdom. Gary Cobb will be with us in two weeks. He serves as the director of training for the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. He has a friend who was a U.S. ambassador, and he was teaching on what it meant to be an ambassador from that passage in 2 Corinthians. And he asked his ambassador friend, hey, can you give me a really simple definition? Because I'm looking and it's so complex and all the things. And what does it mean to be an ambassador? And here it is. You ready? The simple definition of what it means to be an ambassador My job, his friend said, is to make friends in a foreign land on behalf of the sending nation. The great commandment is vast, but it does not skip our literal neighbors. (laughs) In raising the value of neighboring, like Jesus did with the Good Samaritan, we can be tempted to miss the folks in our apartment complex, on our street, some of you that live in rural areas, I know you gotta go a country mile to get to your third neighbor, I get that, but most of us live in close proximity to some. Our literal neighbors are still our neighbors. Dr. Oswald Smith says, the light that shines the farthest shines the brightest at home. Okay, for those of you watching online, I hope that you're on the newsletter list that you can join on the website because that's how, if you get on that now, you'll get this email to you this afternoon at one o'clock. Another one will go out. Take out that handout that you got when my helpers were passing those out. Do you have that? We're gonna do a little activity, a little different application of the sermon this morning. I'm gonna give you uh, 60 seconds. That's not a long time. Some of you, we can't find our keys. Remember where our keys are that fast. I get it. But let's just see how well we do. I want you to think about those who live in the eight houses that are closest to you or the eight units or the eight spaces or whatever that looks like in your world. I want you to think about the eight neighbors that live the closest to you. Okay? Just think about them for a moment. I want you to list out their names, if you can, as many as you can. I will give you 60 seconds. Try to write out their names right now on that sheet of paper. I'll give you a moment. Julia, it just dawned on me that if Mark was the pianist, he would hop up and play the Jeopardy tune. So I'm so (laughs) glad it's you and not, not that, so. 
just another moment. For those of you watching online, I'm sure this makes great video, but maybe on a sheet of paper while you're there, or if you want to wait for the handout, you can. Write down the names of your eight neighbors. I hear some discussion. I love it. Now, honey, you know them. I've never met them, but you've been over there. <laughs> well, didn't you help so-and-so get his thing? Yeah, but I don't know his name. We've cooked hot dogs together, and I don't know his name. Okay, it's not, not been quite a minute, but for time's sake, we're nearing the end of, of the sermon. What's the point? Pastor, did you do that to make us feel bad? No, no. Can I ask a question? Who listed, who had eight spots filled up? I know some folks that do know eight neighbors. I know that. Yeah, one, two, three, four. We've got a high percentage. Just so you know, we've blown the percentage. Don't mess up the rest of my illustration, okay? Y'all are too smart and gifted. Okay, how many of you had at least five? You had at least five. That includes you eight people too. So put your hands up if you've got at least five. That's remarkable. That's absolutely remarkable. Here's my point in that. There's probably some empty spaces, or maybe you took a minute to think of, and for those of you that had it, you may know more than that, but it's time to check in on some of them. For those of us that don't have that, I wanna show you the incredible opportunity that we have right where we live, right where we've been planted by the Lord, the command to love our neighbor. Listen, it's hard to love someone if we don't know their name. So here is our homework. Let's commit, I'm not going to put it on you in a week, but over the next 30 days to fill in all these blocks together, okay? Over the next 30 days, fill in all these blocks. You say, well, that's going to be awkward. I'm an introvert. So they make apps for that, I think. Don't just go snooping online to find out who everybody is, though. Make a connection if you can. Talk to other neighbors. I haven't met them, and I'm so embarrassed, but I haven't met them. What are their names again? Find out who your eight neighbors are are we're going to love our neighbors as grace covenant church before we take on south end we need to be a light where our embassies are julia and the musicians if you'll come to the instruments and to the platform this morning remember your home is an embassy of the kingdom it wasn't your realtor or your great opportunity or your missed opportunity that landed you where you are god ordained that location and it's strategic. Don't be like the lawyer this morning who was trying to be a passer-upper. He was looking for a way out, a way not to have to get his hands dirty. Don't be like the lawyer this morning trying to look for a loophole some way out. Well, they all travel. They don't all travel all the time. That's why they got a house. Be like Jesus. Be like the Good Samaritan who came to where his neighbor was, engaged that person with compassion, and then began to meet their needs. Over the next 30 days, second Sunday of February, we'll reconvene with our little handouts. Don't lose it. Tuck it in your Bible. Put it somewhere special. Over the next 30 days, let's reconvene in 30 days, second Sunday of February, and pray for our neighbors. Just before we go to prayer this morning, maybe you need to pray and ask the Lord today for divine appointments with your neighbors, for divine appointments with somebody, so you can begin to, begin to build relationships and make friends on behalf of our King. Let's pray.
Father, we recognize we can't even make friends without you. We need you, Lord. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Give us those divine appointments this week, in the coming days. Lord, for those who have those connections, may we begin to take those to the next level and encourage our neighbors, check on our neighbors, pray for our neighbors, invite them to share prayer requests so that we can engage them in one of the most important works of ministry, the work of prayer. Father, for those of us who've got quite a few blocks to fill up, I'm going to do this too with the congregation as a member. Lord, we've got some work to do, and we pray that that work would be sweet and rewarding, Lord, and uh, that we would see a great harvest as a result, whether they never come to Grace Covenant one Sunday. That's not the goal here. The goal here is to make sure we are on mission as ambassadors at our embassies for your glory. Let the church say amen.